0: This week on the Lectures in History podcast, a discussion on the individuals and events that shaped American and global public health systems. The lecture is from Boston College nursing professor, Lindsay Camp. This is Rachel from C-SPAN's podcast team. And before we get to this week's episode, I'd like to introduce you to my colleague, Jen. Thanks, Rachel. Hi, I'm Jen, one of the producers here at C-SPAN. And if you enjoy Lectures in History, we think you'll also like reading our weekly American History TV newsletter. If you're into history, you'll appreciate being an American History TV insider. Every week we deliver advanced program highlights so you never miss out on learning more about the people and events that document the American story. It's the place to find out which lectures in history, Civil War battle talks, features on the presidency, and interviews with historians are coming up. Plus, you'll get highlights of featured C-SPAN podcasts. Subscribe today at c-span.org slash connect for your weekly dose of history every Friday. Thanks for being part of our community. Don't forget to visit c-span.org slash connect to sign up.
1: Welcome back, everyone. It is fantastic to see your smiling faces. On Tuesday, you might remember for our very first class, we really just gave a broad introduction to what is public health? Um, What are some of the key focuses in public health that we like to work on? What are the key themes? What is a social determinant of health? And we're going to explore all of those concepts throughout the semester. But today, we want to give you a brief history of public health and how we have gotten to where we are uh, with the public health system both in America and globally um, based on historic events. Before I launch into today's lecture, I want to give just a quick acknowledgement of all of my colleagues um, from across campus and from either other campuses now um, who have contributed to this content and this course. You will meet some of these people throughout the semester. Um, they are really fantastic individuals to work with and who have a really big wealth of knowledge. So um, we should look forward to some guest lectures from this group. So, today, We're gonna focus on really being able to explain the evolution and concepts about the cause and prevention of disease. We're gonna discuss the major historical figures and events um, that shaped public health as we know it today. And we're gonna try to explore how lessons from public health history um, inform current public health practices, and then also how current public health events might inform the future. All right, so we're going to put our thinking caps on at the end of this lecture. Before you came to class today, um, you had a few readings and videos, and particularly we're going to focus on some of the content from the module developed by Boston University School of Public Health that you reviewed, um, and then also the video, um, the ghost map, talking about a ghost map, um, and discussing the cholera epidemic and John Snow's role um, in epidemiology and public health. So why study history? Don't even read the quote on the screen. I see a lot of people kind of staring right now. But you tell me, why study history? This is a public health class. What is, why are we doing this? Yes.
3: Um, my name's Nick, and
0: it kind of helps us to know like, where, how we got here to where we're at today.
1: Yes, absolutely. So Nick, thank you, that's a fantastic answer. He said, it helps us figure out how we got where we are. Okay, can anyone build on that? Yes.
0: And we can also build off different approaches from history or things that have happened in previous years to formulate uh, new ways of thinking or new ways of approaching a certain issue or conflict that we're facing now that may have not been faced before.
1: Absolutely. So if I can summarize, we need to learn from history and historic events and look at, what worked, what didn't work, at different um, really key historic events to inform our approach to public health now and in the future. Absolutely fantastic. So today, we're going to walk through, um, really, we're going to kind of group it by centuries. And we're going to give a really broad overview of the world pre-19th century, century, the world of public health pre-19th century. Just know it is kind of in the broadest terms and we could probably do an entire degree focusing on health evolution during that big span of time. And then we'll focus in on the 19th century and some really key movements that shape public health today like the sanitary movement Industrialization, bacteriology, um, and then we'll talk about the top achievements of public health and health systems in the 20th century, and then we'll talk a little bit more about what's going on today, the 21st century, and again, like I said, how that's going to inform where public health goes in the future. As we look at this content today, I want you to focus on a few foundational shifts over time, and so. What we're going to see is that over centuries, public health emerged and became organized because of two important developments and shifts in thought. The growth of scientific knowledge, which is going to be a very clear theme, and this public acceptance that disease control was both possible and a public responsibility. And we're going to learn more about that. But essentially, when we went through the bacteriology movement right, and developed germ theory, and we found out what is actually causing disease, that's when we went through the shift of we actually can control disease. And we should. And there's something that we need to do about this. Okay. And so another key theme that you're going to see throughout today's lecture is this ebb and flow throughout history on the um, individual focus of health and individual um, health outcomes, individual responsibility for, uh, for health, and then also real structural determinants of health. And again, this concept of public health and public responsibility of health, okay? This is an image you are going to see again and again throughout the semester. So you can go ahead and mark this as a red star slide. Um, This is one example of the social ecological framework that really maps out that health happens both at an individual level um, with genetic components, right? But then it's also influenced by individual behaviors and lifestyle factors, as well as your social and community networks and community factors, um, your living and working conditions, and then most broadly, the general socioeconomic, cultural, environmental, and political conditions of where you live, work, and play. We're gonna dive into this again, like I said, the entire semester, particularly when we talk about social determinants of health um, in just a few weeks. Okay? So, as we look at health throughout the centuries, a key thing that you need to remember is that environment impacts lifestyle, okay? Where you live, your access to resources, the geography of where you live, the climate that uh, you live in, your access to transportation and technology. Uh, the knowledge base that you have access to, this all determines your health outcomes. And we're going to see how this impacted and influenced health outcomes in civilizations over time. And this is a preview, again I'm giving you lots of little previews today for what's to come this semester, of the epidemiologic triad which is just a really, it's a different way to visualize this impact of environment on health and this interconnected nature of Uh, a disease-causing agent, so bacteria, virus, you name it, right, and the environment in which you live and your health outcomes, okay? The person, the agent, and the environment. Um, This agent we're going to see we didn't really understand for centuries, right? But it became very clear very er early on how key the environment was. And so you can really start to explore this pattern and this impact when you look at the shift from hunter-gatherers, we're talking thousands and thousands of years ago. Um, humans were hunting animals for fu- for food, scavenging for food. Um, they weren't living in any place very long right? for safety. Um, they had to move place to place. So what kind of health threats did you think they faced? Number one, do you think they lived very long? No. OK, why not? Yes.
3: Um, my name is Margaret, and they didn't live really long because of just the things they were eating. They had a really hard lifestyle. They had to find all their food, and also if disease occurred um, during that time, there wasn't any really like true medicine. They probably had like osteopathic ways, but nothing that we would have today.
1: And so absolutely fantastic answer um so essentially of we're talking like thousands of years before christ right bc um absolutely don't have access to modern medicine modern resources things like that um when you're hunting and moving and on the move all the time right your safety um, is a major risk you're living in the elements uh, with other animals interesting thing that you mentioned about nutrition so they actually have um a fairly very a fairly varied diet and so nutrition wasn't a huge concern. Um, and another thing that wasn't a huge concern at the time um, was a lot, like sewage systems and things like that, right? Obviously, they didn't have them, um, but also they're moving from place to place. And we're going to see why that becomes relevant later on. So like, that's, this, that's the scene that we have in this hunter-gatherer era. And then we move into the agricultural revolution when people are starting to grow their own crops. And the great thing about growing your own crops is okay, you actually have a sustainable food source, but they also saw some limitation in the variety in their diet that the hunter gatherers had, right? So you had different nutritional concerns during this time and threats to life. And of course, we know. Um, there are threats to the reliability of crops depending on the environment and weather um, that lead to nutritional concerns. And then we get into the Industrial Revolution, and that's where the fun really begins that we're going to talk about today. Um, who knows what was happening in the Industrial Revolution? Really, I'm thinking London, 1700s, 1800s. What was going on? Yes. Um, Lindsay, um, it
2: started urban living where both mass populations of people and livestock were living
1: Absolutely. So jobs boomed, manufacturing boomed, and all of a sudden you see this mass migration into cities and cities become densely populated. And so now you see health threats like sanitation, right? People aren't on the move all the time. If there are issues with cesspools and wastewater, right, like they're living in it. They're right there. There's nowhere else to go. We also see concerns with infectious disease because people are living in closer quarters than they ever have before. We also start to see issues emerge in workers' health and working conditions and how they influence health. So you can see how each era is facing its own health Challenges. And then we move into the scientific revolution that we're going to dive into a little bit. And this is when we learn that it becomes possible to test associations between risk factors and health outcomes. We learn that there are identifiable causes of disease that we can address. And you can imagine the world shifts, and that really. Uh, Brings us to really what we understand of health and public health today, but let's dive into this and highlight a few key events and key people throughout these times So again, let's start with pre-19th century really short time Um, Throughout throughout history before the 1800s um disease was really judged as a sign of poor moral or spiritual condition people had a lot of thoughts about disease um, related to religion and myths and gods and disease outcomes were really a reflection of all of those things rather than any kind of um biologic factor that we know today right um there was no means, like we mentioned before, um, to test the associations between exposures and health outcomes. And this, there was this idea that started really in the era of Hippocr- um, Hippocrates um, in ancient Greece of the humors. right? And that was that um, there was a balance of four fluids in the human body. Um, and that when things happened to throw those fluids out of balance, that's when disease occurred. And the interesting thing here is that we know that's not how it works, right? But it did lead to some individual um, individual treatment for disease and also this idea that the environment could impact health because there was a belief that different environmental factors could actually knock you out of sync, right, and change the balance of your um, fluids, of your humors, is what they were called. There was also a belief that everyone had a different balance of humors that was uh, influenced by individual characteristics. And so doctors started prescribing individual um, interventions, but also started prescribing things like diet and exercise, right? We're talking as early as ancient Greece. And then we also see before the 1800s, let's fast forward to the plague, right? Um, Which comes around mid 1300s, early, early 1700s. It spanned a good chunk of time. Um, But during the plague, we see early efforts to quarantine. And as a matter of fact one of the things that you read was the word quarantine actually comes from the italian phrase i won't i won't attempt it um but the italian phrase for 40 days because some of the earliest quarantine efforts were in the ports of venice um, during the plague and they realized that ships that were coming from areas that were ridden with plague needed to stay anchored for 40 days before they let anyone off that boat to come and and to try to keep their city safe okay so that's some of the earliest quarantine efforts that we ever saw and we actually also so that happened um, again during the plague it happened here in america during the plague time about mid 1600s um, in massachusetts we actually implemented some of the earliest quarantine efforts um, i think it was with ships coming up from barbados where they knew the plague um, plague was rampant and uh, endemic to make sure to try to keep the colony safe here Okay, so again, we're in the pre-19th century, or actually even um, transcending into the early 19th century here with Jeremy Bentham. Jeremy Bentham was a utilitarian and um, really spearheaded this utilitarian idea of ethics. Now, we're at Boston College, right? Most of you, if you've taken an ethics class or a philosophy class, please raise your hand. Yes, most people have. Who can tell me what utilitarianism is? I know someone knows. Yes. Very simply the greatest
3: up to the greatest number in terms of public health, the realization that social efforts to help
1: um, the
3: ill are beneficial for society as a whole.
1: Amazing. Absolutely fantastic. So you knocked out even my next question. So my first question what broadly is utilitarianism? And it's at its most simple definition, it's the idea that an act is good if it creates the greatest good for the greatest number of people, and you want to avoid acts that do widespread harm, okay? And so you took it a step further and already addressed my next question though of, okay, that's great, but why am I talking about this in a public health lecture? This is absolutely crucial because it means that we have a social responsibility to do good and promote health outcomes amongst the greatest good. Does that sound familiar? Sound a little bit about like public health? Absolutely. And then there were other efforts going on during this time. Um, We had some very early efforts at trying to collect vital statistics. This is our first. Our first attempt, even especially here in Massachusetts in the early 1600s, that was our first attempt to really track um, when people live and die for how long. Um, There were early efforts to try to even curb industry pollution, um, inspect food and promote food safety, um, some public water wells. There were some early, early inoculations. So there are things happening at this time, even before we really even understood what caused disease. And like I said, this brings us into early 1900s in the context of industrialization, which we already mentioned, involved a lot of urbanization. There was a lot of swum, slum dwelling at this time as cities grew. There's a was a real concentration of filth, and then this explosion of endemic infectious diseases. And one of the key things that happened during this time is that people realized that the plight of the poor impacted the rich. Basically, when you have infectious diseases and you are living in those close of quarters, that close of quarters, right, no one is safe or protected from disease. So again, there's this idea of public good and that improving the health of one group is going to improve the health of all. And so, also during the time, we have the great sanitary awakening. And so, again, we still haven't got to germ theory, right? We still don't exactly know. I think soon on a slide I'm going to talk about miasmas. That was the general thought um, of disease causation at the time, right? But so, we still don't actually know what causes disease. But we have an idea that filth isn't good for you, right? In general, like. Living around a cesspool is probably not the healthiest thing. Um, And so cleanliness was really identified as a central objective of public health at that time. We're looking at kind of the mid-19th century here. Um, And here we are. The um, prevailing theories of disease causation were um, miasma. So that was this idea that, it was conditions of the atmosphere. They thought that there were like vapors um, coming from filth that were actually causing disease, um, which really justified this sanitary approach. Um, and then they also recognized that specific contagions caused infectious and disease, which really justified quarantine. So they, they don't know what causes it, but they do think there is a cause. And so that's why they, um, that's why they implement quarantine to try to contain health. Um, there's also um, Oliver Wendell Holmes publishes the contagiousness of pure pearl fever at the time. Um, and this really aligned with work of a colleague in London, um, Ignaz Simmelweis, um, who realized he was working on maternity wards and he realized that there was a maternity ward where medical students went and there was a maternity w- ward where they didn't go. And so they were seeing higher rates of pure pearl I can't even say that word, postpartum infection. That's what it is. They were seeing higher rates of postpartum infection on the ward where the medical students went. And he said, why don't we start washing our hands just to see? He actually had a colleague who did an autopsy and cut his hands during the autopsy of one of these patients who developed similar symptoms. And so that's when he said, hmm, I I think there might be something going on here with direct contact. So why don't we start washing our hands in between patients and see if that helps anything? And it did. Okay, And so William Oliver Ward noticed the same thing, and they start talking about it, but it's still years before we actually get to germ theory, Okay, But we're starting to see precursors um, to that theory in a a growing understanding of what's causing health or what's influencing health. And so during this time, we also have Edwin Chadwick in London who um, publishes The Sanitary Conditions of the Laboring Population of Great Britain. And what he found was that life expectancy was much lower in these urban towns than in the countryside. And he proposed the sanitary idea, um, including pure water and sewage. He says, look, there's this discrepancy in um, life expectancy. We need to clean up our cities, Okay, And it was controversial, but it was eventually adopted as the Public Health Act of 1848. And so this brings us, we're kind of in the mid-1800s to late-1800s. And you all actually read a poem before coming to class, um, hopefully. um, And it was talking about the fence or the ambulance. okay? And you also watched a video by Dr. Kamara Jones talking about the Cliff of Good Health. And they had very, very similar messages. But the poem that you read, The Fence or the Ambulance, that talks about, well, Everyone's falling off the cliff, they're getting injured, they're dying. We can increase the number of ambulances at the bottom to try to save lives, but also we could just build a fence, right? And keep them from falling, right? So that was written, we suspect that it was written, in the late 1800s. It was published in the very early 20th century, but we think it was written in the late 1800s. And like I said, you watched a video by Dr. Kamara Jones explaining a very similar analogy, but over a century later, well over a century later. So we see this early idea of prevention when we talk about things like improving sanitary conditions in cities, improving working environments, improving workers' health, right? We start to see this idea that, oh, we can actually prevent disease. And so even over a century ago, whether well over a century ago, we had people writing about this concept, that maybe we should shift our focus. But during that time, we still lacked uh, the benefit of bacteriology. Um, We did start to see a rise in statistical analysis and statistical um, approaches to studying health and health outcomes, thanks in humongously large part to who's the father of epidemiology? Can anyone tell me? Yes, you can read the slide. Hold on, I've heard from you. Who else, who else? Say it out loud.
4: Victor, I'm going to go with John
1: Snow. Oh my goodness, fantastic. Um, I don't know where you pulled that answer from. Um, Jon Snow, so let me tell you all now, okay, listen up. If you don't know the answer on an exam, at least write down Jon Snow. It does not matter what the question is, just at least write down Jon down John Snow and I'll know you will have learned something from this class. So who can tell me based on the readings and videos before class, what did Jon Snow do? Uh, yes, I'll go to you. Um, he was one of
3: the people who recognized that cholera was found in water not, in the, or not transmitted through the air, um, and he was able to do that by, there was this one pump on Broad Street, and he was able to track geo- um, geographically the number of people who were infected and right surrounding the pump as it, the numbers got smaller as you were farther removed.
1: Absolutely, fantastic answer. So remember that um, there was a major cholera outbreak in London, um, in the mid 1800s, um, at the time, miasmas was still the kind of prevailing theory of disease causation. Um, people didn't know what to do, and John Snow suspected. He realized, you know what? When people get cholera, they usually start with GI symptoms, but everyone's saying it's something in the air. But if it was something in the air, wouldn't it start as respiratory? Like, hmm, I think think something might be wrong here. He said, I think it's in the water. And so when they did have a massive outbreak, he was the one who went and identified. He went and surveyed who was getting cholera, who was dying from cholera, and he actually mapped it out. Okay, And these were the earliest efforts at epidemiologic data collection and conclusions that we see, Um, hence why he's the father of epidemiology. So he mapped it out, and he said, you know what? People who are getting cholera are concentrated around the Broad Street pump, exactly like you said. And he went and he removed the handle. And it was radical at the time, but they saw um, de- drastic decreases in cholera when he did that. And this revolutionized how we approached health and health surveillance. other things going on at this time as you imagine we've talked a lot about public sanitation and water sewage and garbage removal um, and there was a real focus on the comments resources shared by all how can we improve sanitation of the resources shared by all and then there was also growing critique um, of housing and working conditions for the poor okay so we talked about this ebb and flow at the beginning of class between individual level health um, and kind of societal health, public health, public good. Where do you think we sit right now during this time, not right now in 2024? You think we're more focused on individual health or public health, public good? 50
3: 50 chance. Yes. Um, in the wake of
1: the pandemic, like public good? Yeah, absolutely. So, at this time, right, um, in this context, when we're really focusing on working conditions of the poor, public sanitation, right, there's a major focus on public good when we see this growth in utilitarianism um, and kind of the structural impacts on health outcomes. Fantastic. Okay, another um, major figure at this time, particularly here in Massachusetts, was Lemuel Shattuck. Um, He was a former school teacher, bookseller, um, but he released the report of of the Massachusetts Sanitary Commission, and he was the one that really proposed the ongoing and regular collection of those vital statistics that I mentioned before, um, birth and death data, um, and conducting ongoing statistical analyses. And to inform um, sanitary measures and to track health. During this time, um, he also proposed that we have state and local boards of health to oversee this data. Um, and his recommendations were later adopted with the first the creation of the first state Board of Health in Massachusetts in 1869. And so I won't walk through all of these, but this is just um, to highlight the number of reports being released that really emphasized um, the importance of workers' health and housing, right, and giving kind of that preferential option for the poor. There was a growing um, recognition that there were disparate health outcomes, disparate housing conditions, and something needed to be done. Okay? So there was a real recognition, again, of kind of these what we now call social determinants of health. And there was a recognition that health was no longer just an individual uh, responsibility, um, but it became necessary to form public boards of health, agencies, and institutions to protect the health of all citizens. And that was a statement from the Institute of Medicine. Okay, And so we already talked about if we're in this ebb and flow, we kind of head into um, the, late, the late 1800s with this focus on the structural determinants of health, sanitation, workers' health, um, social determinants. And then bacteriology hits, and the world changes forever. Can you imagine being the first person to look through a microscope and seeing a bunch of bacteria? I can't even imagine what went through his mind. Like right, like what they looked like, what he thought it was, and I can't even imagine if he, how can you comprehend the impact that that is going to have on the world. But at this time in the late 1800s, early 1900s, finally we understand. Um, what causes disease and that there are disease-causing agents like bacteria and viruses um, that can be addressed and germ theory really prevails and it replaces the old um, miasmic theory um, that prevailed for centuries before this time. And so during this time, there are many, many big names, Okay, But one, just one that we'll highlight. And I'm sure some people would cringe if they're like, oh, no, you only have time to talk about just one when you're talking about germ theory. Um, But we choose Louis Pasteur. Who knows what are some of the things you, yes, can read from the slide. But what are some of the things that Pasteur is known for? There's one big process. Yes?
3: Um, Pasteurization. Pasteurization,
1: absolutely. (laughs) Yes, fantastic. Um, So he did a lot of research that contributed to germ theory. Um, He found out that um, he proved that anthrax was caused by a specific bacteria along with several other diseases. Um, He developed some very early vaccines and really built on Edward Jenner's work um, who had demonstrated the principle of inoculation and smallpox before him um, to really continue the vaccine technology. Um, he popularized germ theory but with ba- with pasteurization he found out that you can heat things right um, to kill the bacteria right. So this shifted how we approach um, disease transmission um, and treating health for the centuries to come. Okay what impact do you think germ theory had on this ebb and flow between focusing on individual term- determinants of health and structural determinants of health? We were going into this time really focused on sanitation, the built environment impacting workers' health. What do you think? Yes. I think
2: that comparatively, it tends um, to more like of an individual look into health and talking about like the individual person and like how um, each of those, like, diagnoses can be completely different
1: Yes. In a way. Fantastic. So, yes, there was a shift back to the focus of treating the individual with disease because now we knew how, okay, and this was revolutionary. So we shift back to individual-level interventions. We really popularize immunizations and disease treatment. Immunizations does fall under prevention, so we still have that, but then we have a major shift in disease treatment. Um, There was a major focus on child and infant health at this time, particularly um, immunizations started to be required for school, Um, first in Providence, Rhode Island, right, Um, one of our neighbors. They started school inspection programs, child education programs, Um, there was a major focus on health in early ages." And actually, I do want to highlight that last little quote here, um, because I think it's a great highlight of what was happening. So we went into the era of bacteriology really thinking that Sanitation um, efforts were really the key to disease prevention and social compassion, um, a concern for the common good, that utilitarian approach, those were the impetus for prevention. And then now, the basis of prevention was knowledge and expertise, it was focused on the science, right? And so that's why you see things shift to immunizations as a prevention measure. And that brings us into public health in the 20th century, the early 1900s. And so here is a list from the CDC of the top public health achievements of the 20th century. What a wild time. These were some major achievements, right? Vaccinations became massively widespread, and we even saw the elimination of smallpox, one of the greatest public health achievements in modern times. We saw drastic improvements in motor vehicle safety that we'll actually, I think, listen to a podcast about later in the semester when we talk about injuries. Um, But over decades and decades of the uh, mid-20th century, efforts were uh, put in place to reduce motor vehicle deaths um, very successfully. Um, There were efforts at the federal level to improve workplace safety, to control infectious diseases. We saw a decline in deaths from coronary heart disease and stroke, safer and healthier foods, healthier mothers and babies, um, improved family planning resources, fluoridation of drinking water, and recognition of tobacco use as a health hazard, which was a major achievement that uh, transcended into the early 21st century as well. So during this time, there was a major focus also um, on behavior change um, and health education and physician well visits. And so let's start just talking about health education. So it was a central public health intervention during the 20th century, right? We see lots of massive um, anti-tobacco campaigns, Um, We see a growth in radio, TV, cinemas, right? It makes sense that health education would take off during this time for both prevention of disease and um, promotion of health. And so I just mentioned um, we see anti-tobacco campaigns, right, towards the later end of the 20th century. Who has seen an anti-tobacco campaign in their life? Yes, a commercial, absolutely. Um, the Truth Campaign is a major one that's out there. Um, do you think that alone is what led to the success of tobacco control efforts in the late 20th, early 21st century? No, 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 no. So repeat after me, repeat after me. Education is good. Education is good. But not enough. But not enough. Okay, and I want you to remember that when you do your group projects this semester and you come up with public health interventions because everyone wants to start with I'm going to address childhood obesity by teaching kids how to get active and teaching kids about fruits and vegetables, which is absolutely fantastic and we absolutely need, hey, I'm a health calm person, right? Wait until I do the health communication lecture. It's my jam, okay? So it's absolutely needed and important. But why might not that be enough?
3: Yes. Because you can teach them so much about what they should be eating, but you don't think about do they have access to these foods? Can they actually um, find them in their local neighborhoods and do they have the money to buy them?
1: Absolutely fantastic answer. So think about that social ecological framework that I started with today that I said we'd come back to again and again and again. That's fantastic that you can teach good behaviors. And people can have the best of intentions, right? You can have everyone in America or everyone across the world intend to quit smoking because they saw your educational campaign and they know it's bad for them. But you don't know what the social context is. right? And you have to build the environment both in their immediate community, their their immediate social environment, and their broader social and political environment in a way that promotes health and helps people actually do, choose the healthy, behaviors, the healthy behaviors that they want to choose. So absolutely fantastic. So what efforts, in addition, the ads were good, what other efforts with tobacco control do you think were led to the success um, that we saw? So we have massive ed- health education campaigns. What else did we do to control tobacco? Yes, sorry. Absolutely. Yes, we implemented policies to limit purchase of tobacco products. And I think there are something there are dozens. Let's just say that. I won't try to give an exact number, but there are dozens of countries across the world right now that have smoke-free policies in place. Absolutely fantastic. And there's something else related to policy but also distinct. What else did we do? Yes. Taxation, we raise the prices. Absolutely. If you want to discourage something, make it more expensive. And so that trifecta really led to the success that we had. And that is a lesson that we can learn for health behaviors to come and health promotion to come, Okay, And so I mentioned, so we have this growth in health education during the 20th century. And then we also have the physician well visit. So up until this time. Um, Actually, let me just do a poll, right? Like, who has been to just an annual well visit, right? Either recently, I think before you come to college, right, you have to go re-up your vaccines when you're um, growing up. You go in for an annual well visit, make sure all your vaccines are up to date so you can go to school, go to all your camps, participate in your sports, absolutely. But until this time, until uh, the 20th century, people went to the doctor when they were sick, and that was it. And so. This really uh, continues this focus and is a, another effort on disease pre- prevention in a different way than we've seen in the past. Okay, during this time, we also see specialized healthcare clinics and public health clinics, um, particularly for the poor. So you see a renewed um, focus on health for the poor um, and. Trying to expand access to TB care, um, care for venereal disease, baby clinics, right? Try to promote the health of the common good. And so that brings us into the end of the 20th century. where we see a mix of things, right? So we see some funding cuts to the public health system. We see a renewed focus on healthcare financing um, and the medical side of the healthcare system. Um, but we also see a renewed focus on the socioeconomic context to some extent. And we see a vast globalization of public health with, like, the Millennium Development Goals um, from the United Nations that really set out. Um, I think at the time it was eight goals, don't quote me on that, but they set out a list of goals to achieve by 2015 to try to end poverty and promote health across the world. And that led to the development of the sustainable development goals, which you will also explore during your group project this semester. It's a renewed set of goals. There are 17 priority areas um, to improve equity, end poverty, and improve health across the globe by 2030. And so that brings us into the 21st century, into today. And so what do you think would be the major public health event highlighted in the 21st century if I were teaching this in 2100 or 3000? What do you think it would be? Yes. The COVID, pandemic. the COVID pandemic. Absolutely. Just now, I brushed over. it. I didn't even mention the Spanish flu of 1918 in this talk, but very similarly, right? Um, People are going to look back in time, and you can see these are the 10 leading causes causes of death in the United States published by the CDC in 2019, 2020, and 2021. And there it pops up right in 2020 as the third leading cause of death. It maintained its status as the third leading cause of death in 2021. I think, according to some preliminary data, it's fourth in 2022. But this had a major, major impact. I don't have to teach you all this, um, on the health across the world, health outcomes across the world. And so when we look at the top public health achievements of the 20th century, one of the things that we saw is um, control of infectious diseases, which absolutely, this doesn't negate the progress that we made in that, right? But all of a sudden, infectious diseases diseases and emerging infectious diseases are a major public health concern again. Before I go too much further, what do you think some of the lessons learned will be from the COVID pandemic that people talk about years from now? Yes. My
5: name's Alec, and I think the effectiveness of quarantine
1: Absolutely. So there will be a renewed talk of quarantine measures, just like we talked about it at different um, points throughout history. Absolutely. That was a major part of the pandemic. What else? Yes. Um, I think it's Mark. I would just say personal
2: hygiene quality, wearing a mask.
1: Yes. Yes. Who wore a mask? And now this, is, this can actually also be cultural and depends on where you lived and where you grew up in the world, but who wore a mask before COVID hit ever? Right? Very, very few of us um, ever thought, how many people went to school with a cold at some point, right? Growing up in grade school, went to school with a cold. It just, it just didn't happen, right? But now we all think twice. You start to get the sniffles and you think, oh, like, should I mask up? Right, That's a major public health shift. Fantastic. What else? Yes. how um, they are intertwined? So say that last part, how they are what? Intertwined. Yes, absolutely, the how um, vaccines and politics became intertwined, absolutely. And so I think to kind of group the first couple of answers, I think there was a um, rapid growth in knowledge on disease transmission and control, right, with hand washing, um, with masking, with quarantine, um, but then this other theme that came out right is vaccine hesitancy um, and how political it became absolutely and so I think what we saw is that um, we made a ton of progress in vaccination in the 20th century but now we have to revisit that again and make sure are we um, Are we adequately engaging communities um, in the vaccination development process? Are we adequately building trust? Um, Because there were some real valid concerns among communities who have been taken advantage of in the public health system and in the medical system um, when this brand new vaccine came out that um, seemed to be produced um, at a rapid pace, right? And so there was a lot of hesitancy at that time. I think to build on that, right? it became politicized. But from a public health standpoint, how do we work in that? And how do we build trust with communities? And how do we effectively communicate? I think these are all themes, you're 100% right, all themes that came up during the pandemic that we have the opportunity to learn from. Anything else? What do you think? Yes.
4: I think the effect of social media and like the internet on how people get information about public health issues, and like developments within the medical industry is a big thing that people look back on when they look at
1: the COVID pandemic. Absolutely, so another theme with health communication, right, so I told you it's not enough, but it is my jam. So another theme with health communication is what do we do in the era that anyone can say anything online? And it becomes really, really hard to figure out who the expert is, who knows what, who you can trust, especially when there's growing mistrust in the institutions that people traditionally turn to. So absolutely, that's a challenge and an opportunity for growth. Let's see. I'll come here and then back over here. Yes.
0: I would say being cautious of also who is getting sick, because I know if like a grandparent or someone who's of older age um, or someone who already has previous illnesses were more cautious of getting COVID, even family members were, but someone younger or our age aren't as concerned if we don't have other health conditions that could intertwine
1: with it. Absolutely. So almost a little bit of um, self-triaging, almost, right? Um, Who's heard of triaging, either in a medical emergency, in an emergency room, right? Um, and trying to figure out who's at highest risk and um, providing them the care that they need. Um, But similarly, right, there was kind of this level of thought for each individual of, okay, I think I might be okay to go see my 20-year-old friend, but I might not go visit my sick grandparent or my aunt who has cancer, right? Absolutely, and there was a huge growth in knowledge around that, around what uh, populations are immunocompromised and at risk when either COVID or any other infectious disease outbreak occurs. Fantastic. I, th- I think I saw some hands over here. Yes? Yeah, kind of in line with what was just said, um, a shift back to like the public
2: good, doing things for the public good, rather than just individuality.
1: Absolutely. So I love you. Again, everyone's anticipating my questions today. Um, so I wanted to ask, if we see this ebb and flow between a focus on structural determinants of health and public good and individual determinants of health it sounds like you think that there was a shift back towards a focus on the common good structural determinants do people agree with that? awesome anyone disagree because that's where the best learning comes from It's okay okay yeah I think I think I would agree I think there was a renewed uh, understanding that your health impacts others and that we're all in this together right um fantastic so i want to broaden out a little bit before i get off this slide we're talking a lot about covid because that is the major public health event um, of this century so far Um, and i will say talking about public health teaching public health is drastically different in 2024 than it was in 2019 for all of the reasons that you all just highlighted but what else do you think has shifted at all um, since the 20th century, do you think that there's room for growth on any of these achievements? Yes. I think that
4: the recognition of tobacco use as a health hazard is something that's sort of like evolved because of the rise of like vaping and like e-cigarettes and also the legalization of marijuana in like many different states. Um, and that's that's something that like our generation and like teenagers have really struggled
1: Absolutely. So we can never get complacent, right? New things are coming out all of the time, including things like e-cigarettes, vaping. Um, Now there's a whole new area in need of research um, and education, right, with marijuana legalization. So absolutely, that's an area to revisit. Yes? I love that, I love that. So we make great strides um, in food safety, but making sure that, that those advances are equitably distributed and that people equitably have access to healthy and safe foods. Fantastic. I think
2: talking about family planning and the journey where you have um, it's more common to defer starting family till later in life. You have the introduction of like ART assist reproductive technology, but working to make that again more equitable and more effective for people who don't have as much
1: access. Absolutely. So shifts in family planning practices require a continued look at um, our recommendations and how equitably interventions are being offered to promote individual family planning. Is that a good summary? Fantastic. Um, I was going to say like on a larger level that there's still like huge, um, like
2: significant gaps with like access to healthcare and like adequate healthcare and education about healthcare and resources like that, um, like socioeconomically and kind of like, I mean, it has gotten better, but like, is that enough for our society today?
1: Absolutely. So I think if I'm understanding and I'm starting to hear a theme here is that, yes, we've made great strides in all of of these areas, but maybe the challenge of our generation and our century is to make sure that these advances are equitably distributed. Is that right? fantastic and i think this is where this is where i get excited this is where the magic happens and it can be daunting because we can focus on the problems we can focus on the challenges which there are many right but we know the task at hand and your generation is so much smarter than any of us. Your generation is so much better prepared to, I, to address these issues um, from an interdisciplinary standpoint, using things like design thinking and innovative engineering and technology. Like, you all are the ones that are going to figure this out. And I know some of you are like, yeah, OK. But others of you are like, yeah, I know. I got this. And I fully, fully anticipate that you do. Um, And so the last thing that I'll highlight here that goes along with that is that people I don't think I've mentioned is healthier mothers and babies. Um, So we have made great strides in this globally. We have made great strides in America. But we continue to have the highest um, maternal mortality rates um, of any of our peer high-income countries here in America. And we continue to see abysmal disparities in maternal health outcomes, particularly impacting Black mothers, so I think that's another area um, that's going to—I I hope, right—that's going to be addressed by in this century. Okay. Any other? Well, I'm going to ask this some more, right? Um, so we'll come back to this idea of other thoughts um, and things that we hope to achieve this century. Um, but we will say, right, barriers to good health do persist, even though we've known since the Greeks, right? We talked about um, ancient Greek civilizations. Since the Egyptians, we've we've known the importance of sanitation, right, but people still don't have access to clean water across the globe. And so why do you think that is? Yes, there's a hint, but why do you think that is if we've known about it for centuries, centuries, and centuries? And why do you think we see disparities within the country, across countries? We're going to talk about global disparities a lot in this class. It's about distribution of resources, right? So it's about distribution of resources. Globally, it can be about nationalism. And so um, you have to think about, Uh, you have to think about finances, you have to think about economies, you have to think about all of these different disciplines that impact health when you're making health decisions and when you're trying to promote health for the common good in the global sense. Okay, and so What do we need to strengthen public health? We need funding. Um, We need strong coordination between different public health sectors. Um, We need a larger workforce, which is why I'm so happy we have over 90 of you in here. I'm hoping every single person goes into the public health workforce here. Um, One of the things that's really challenging about public health, and I remember talking about this a lot at the beginning of the pandemic, is that our efforts are largely invisible. If public health works well, You'll never know what we did, right? If public health works well, the pandemic didn't happen, the food outbreak didn't occur, right? Um, we avoid these major tragedies, but no one ever will know what could have been. But that's the goal. But that also, from a marketing standpoint, makes it pretty challenging um, until you get a century in and you can look back and say, whoa, look at everything that we did in the 20th century. Um, And we always need evidence. But like I said in the slide before, you need to marry scientific evidence with the political context, um, with the social norms, right? Evidence alone is not always enough. Um, Distribution of resources is a big deal. And it's complicated. And there are a lot of competing factors, right? Um, So you need to have a voice in all of these worlds and be able to work with the different players in the room to actually achieve some of these health goals that we've already mentioned. And who remembers this slide from class one, the first class? Okay, I'm seeing head nods. Good, good. I got a little worried when I didn't see any hands that we totally missed the entire lecture, right? But public health is interdisciplinary and complicated because of everything that we just talked about. It takes uh, financing. It takes um, health policy, education policy. Um, it takes all different di- disciplines. It takes technology, science, art, advocacy um, to actually optimize the public good and, um, and kind of coming back to that utilitarian approach um, to promote the most health for the largest population. Um, so that's just why there's really no easy solution and challenges, but again, why I have a lot of faith in this group who I think grew up in an interdisciplinary world. And so we talked about this a little bit. Um, do you all think where are we going? Do you think we're continuing? Or we're going to shift back to an individual focus. Do you feel a continued shift uh, towards the kind of structural determinants of health focus? Where do you think we're headed in the centuries to come, decades to come? Yes.
0: Um, I think like personalized medicine is going to become more uh, like prominent, especially with like the genetic editing.
1: Yes, absolutely, in the best way, right? so um, personalized medicine, um, growing knowledge in genetics, um, and how to individualize treatment are some of the most exciting advances in health right now and are going to really shift towards that individual focus in a really fantastic way. What else? Yes.
2: Um, I think it could also shift to like a structural focus, just because when you were mentioning like the maternal mortality rate, that's more of like a structural issue with like bias and um, just racism in general. So I feel like it could turn into a more structural thing too, so.
1: Sure, absolutely. So there's, there could be this continued focus on the social determinants of health, the structural um, influences on health that we've seen trending since the pandemic, yes.
2: In, in a more structural way is like talking about like the debates about universal health care and kind of like the United States role in, in that and um, kind of like how can that possibly close you know some socioeconomic gaps um, or not or that that type of debate yeah
1: absolutely so the continued debate for universal health care in America how that will influence possible sh- possible shift to kind of population health mm-hmm I agree, but I think as
0: much as the public health field and professionals want it to be structural, there's a lot of individuals, especially in this country, who think very individualistically Mm -hmm. and who think only for themselves and what they already have, Mm -hmm. um, which I think prevents a lot of progress in this field because we saw it during COVID. Um, We saw it in a lot of, I think, southern states Mm -hmm. um, and in the south, people going against people saying that it was going against their freedoms to wear a mask or, you know, why it turned so political was because individuals believe that their freedom and their rights were being taken away from them. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think as much as we want to progress in this structural manner, I feel like there's a lot of individuals who are also pushing back against that, which is preventing so much progress from happening.
1: Sure. Absolutely. Yes, there's another hand, couple more hands, yes. I feel like bridging like the answers that were given before, I feel like social media plays such a big part in this because like the
4: answer before like people were speaking out about how they felt like their freedoms were being sort of like gone against with the implication of mass and everything and vaccines. But then you can also look at how marginalized communities have used social media to bring more attention on like the issues that they face. And so I feel like it's just kind of splitting both ways to both, like a structuralized approach to medicine, but also an individual
1: approach to medicine. Absolutely, okay, I saw some other hands. Adding to the individual aspect,
3: I think a big shift that, like, we've seen, especially in our generation, is, like, the focus on mental health and looking at your lifestyle as a whole person. So I definitely think that we'll have these great shifts structurally, but going back to really, like, what do I individually need to succeed and to help these structural aspects? So looking back on mental health issues and what I need to do in my life to ensure, like, I can help others as well.
1: Mm, Absolutely. An individual focus, but all for the effort so you can contribute to the common good. I like that. I think I saw another hand. Yes? Uh,
2: I was thinking, um,
1: just going into a
2: structural component, as health and global health transcends into the political and just public fields, we're at a time where an entire population has to vote for health matters that only affect a certain subgroup, whether it's um, people of lower income or women. Um, But now everyone has a say towards what health restrictions slash health commodities will be allowed
1: okay so if I understand correctly you were saying that we live in an era where um, the masses are making are voting to make the decision um, health decisions for specific populations is that what is that a good summary yeah okay yes absolutely fantastic and I saw another hand actually and sorry so can, you repeat, was that a vote towards structural determinant focus or individual level focus? Well, I would say
2: it's structural. Okay. It's no longer seen as necessarily like a scientific private sphere, and now it's a public sphere.
1: Okay, okay, a public and political, invo- yes, okay, I see. Yes, yes, my fearless well, fact, co-teacher. an earlier
5: question from Lindsay, what do you think will be the single most important public health threat in this century during your life? It's all about what, where we are going. We have heard a lot of issues. There may be new pandemics. Who knows? But what do you think is the single most important one?
1: Got two hands back here. Yes. I think it's going to be climate change. You know, you have climate
4: refugees. You have um, people who have adverse health effects from climate change, smog, pollution, things like that.
5: So one vote is for climate change over
1: the years? Right ideas? next to you, I
4: think. I guess I kind of like took the question differently. I would say probably ignorance and indifference to other people's issues because if you're not like voting is such a big part of like what public health will be and if people aren't taking into account the issues that other people in their community are facing, then there won't be any progress for the different, like, marginalized communities, which is probably like the highest concentration of health issues, like where those
5: Both answers excellent. The first one is the one that I had on my mind, but the second one, of course, strongly influences how we can cope with this, because there are still important, influential people who question if there's really a climate change that will drive us into crisis. Just again yesterday at the World Economic Forum, the new president of Argentina, he says there is no climate crisis. So with this background now, what do you think in terms of public health versus individual medicine? What will really help us in this century?
2: I think that with any, it, I think that I'm definitely in the mindset that structural change with the healthcare system, whether globally or locally, will have the biggest impact on individuals. Um, I think that we are we have done so much work on individual health that now it's time to like make those fundamental changes in society.
1: Absolutely, so a vote for structural. Other thoughts? Yeah, I, I think I would build that what, again, excites me most and really gets me jazzed is how, trying to think through how we can marry individual interventions and continue um, medical technology advances, right? Um, Continue our advances in uh, precision medicine, things like that, and marry that with equal emphasis and focus on the structural determinants of health to try to improve health for all. And it's big and it's challenging, and when you're talking, again, about distribution of resources, like there are only so much to go around. But I, maybe too optimistically, but I don't think so, right? I optimistically have faith. And so, uh, Kurt stole my last slide, but that's <laughs> good, but that's perfect. So we talked what will be the 20th, um, the twenty first century top public health issues and successes, right? That we would hope. Um, so we want to address climate change. What are oth- what are other topics that you hear a lot in the news related to public health right now that face our generation? I don't conflict, between countries. conflict, war. Bet- war. <laughs> water, food, um, medical facilities. Yeah. Absolutely. So the impact of war on the environment in addition to the access to resources, clean water, food, medicine, right, the supply chain impacts, and also the impacts on mental health. You mentioned mental health a little while ago. um, And I'm hoping we're gonna have a guest lecture um, from a fantastic group here on campus later in the semester who looks at the implications of war on children's mental health um, and who are doing really great work across the world. So I hear war, I've heard climate change, I think you mentioned mental health as an example a while ago. Mm If I could
4: add on to the mental health part of it, I feel like we're kind of in a generation where we're shifting from just treating mental health issues after something's already happened to the more preventative stage of it, where people can now go get therapy and bring it up because it's a little bit more
5: destigmatized.
1: Yes, absolutely. So building on kind of these lessons of prevention that we've talked about throughout centuries, there's been a shift um, or maybe an add-on, I think, in mental health care in trying to figure out how can we promote mental health, healthy um, healthy mental health outcomes, absolutely, and prevent uh, mental health concerns. Yes? I think
4: something that
1: is just emerging right now
4: is the rise of disordered eating, especially in our generation, mm. and traditionally, like Physicians don't really understand um, like why disordered eating really occurs and like, how to treat that as a mental issue as well as a physical issue. Um, and I think that's something that like, in the decades to come, people will have to do a lot more research on and like, how to help people have a diet that fits them and like, the, the issues that they face.
1: Mm, absolutely so bridging a lot of what we talked about with mental health concerns and physical health concerns and disordered eating
2: Mm -hmm. Um, I think addiction is going to continue to be um, a large public health issue uh, especially with like the rises in um, overdose from fentanyl
1: Mm, absolutely yes
0: I think poverty and homelessness is going to get overshadowed slightly because it's a past event and I I think that if we don't put enough effort into it it's going to continue to grow whereas like if we can satisfy the past and complete all of our like past problems, mm-hmm. then we can move into the future, mm. which is like climate change
1: Yes, absolutely so homelessness um, before before you we heard addiction, definitely um, the opioid epidemic is a major issue of our time so now I just want to rephrase this question just a little bit um, with a focus on this slide again because. Because you talked about if we don't address this, right, the homelessness is going to become overshadowed shadowed and could have major public health implications. What do you hope or what do you think will be the biggest success of your generation? Yes? I think overcoming
2: the barriers to
5: education, as many children as possible going to school across the world, probably
1: Awesome, awesome. So there's a vote that our biggest success is that we're going to increase access to childhood education across the globe, which we know education is linked to health outcomes, so it would be a major win for public health, absolutely. Yes?
0: I think politically, I hope, I hope that there will be more representation for our generation mm-hmm. in office and um, people a part of this generation who have a say in policies that can be put in place to help the public health world that we live in.
1: Absolutely. So can I? So better representation in office and voices, better representation um, among voices who are making policy decisions that influence public health. In the effort for, to work towards health equity, is that, is that the yes. general? Yes. 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 So health equity, increased representation, absolutely. A vote for that. Yes. Um, I would definitely say more widespread communication
3: just because social media is so accessible like TikTok is the new Google, so things like that that are more accessible to more people.
1: Absolutely, so we talked a lot about, or even I would say during the pandemic, kind of misinformation was um, was kind of the highlight, right, the news story. Um, but on the flip side of that, you're right. I think we're gonna look back and see um, what a growth in access to information we had. And so we have to learn how to sort through it, right, and identify what's credible, but there has been a, enormous boom in access to information, and that's going to have extreme implications on public health. Fantastic. Any? Yes? Um, I'm going
2: to hope that in this century we're able to address gun violence because that's the cause of death at least in the
1: United States. Yes, absolutely. So particularly within the United States, your hope is that we are the generation that addresses gun violence. Absolutely. Yes? Um,
2: I'm hoping that the difference of the doses, although help, still, like, main mean, still I think it's driving, there's motivation and more access to darkened
1: prevention. Absolutely. So you see promising um, interventions growing right now to control, um, control and address addiction. Absolutely. And so that's your hope for the big success? Mm-hmm. Um, I
4: think we've already seen this a little bit, the globalization of medical care and hoping we can make sure that people aren't dying in lower income countries from diseases we've prevented
1: in higher income countries. Absolutely. Okay. Um, so bringing us back to global health again, right, which that's the focus of this semester, absolutely. So how can we address um, diseases in lower income countries um, like a lot of infectious diseases, right? Like cholera um, that we mentioned earlier today, right? So how can we address those in those areas And we're that we've already addressed in higher income countries? And we're going to talk about the, this um, um, epidemiologic transition later when we talk, I think, I think, in our epidemiology lecture, about how you see uh, that transition in disease in a country. And as you move from kind of a lower income status um, with, more unstable infrastructure to higher income countries, how you see the shift from communicable disease to what do you think some of the leading causes of death in high income countries are? I'll just go ahead and tell you this one because I don't know how, that you'll pull up, you'll get this answer just out of your hat. But non communicable diseases, right? Like cancer, heart disease, lung disease, right? As we're living longer, as we're not dying from infectious disease at young, younger ages, you see all these non communicable diseases creep up. Yes.
5: I'm surprised that I didn't hear anything about the latest hype uh, in terms of potential successes for the 21st century. What else is in the pipelines and may have an important impact on individual medicine and public health and the relation between the two during this century? I'm sure, you're all talking about it daily.
1: Weight loss runs was a guess. Yes.
5: AI, AI. Yeah. See, a more a sentence to it. Probably everybody knows AI, artificial intelligence. Can it be used for public health? We'll find out, and uh, we're on the way to finding out.
1: All right. So, last quick question: What do you think you can do to promote public health? We already talked. It's kind of tough because if it works. If it works, then the disease didn't happen, right? The, or the major event didn't happen. So how do you promote public health? Yes.
2: Um, I think kind of highlighting the histories and like where we've gone wrong in the past. I think that like kind of going back to like what this lecture is about, like learning from history, I feel like is one of the best ways to improve the future.
1: You know what? I think that's the best way we could wrap up our history Mm -hmm. lecture that I could even think of. Learn from history, absolutely, and point to our successes, not only in the 20th century, um, but the centuries before that, right, where we started, before the 1800s, um, what worked, what didn't work, and try to bring that to today's context. Fantastic. Any other thoughts? Yes. Um, I think, as you were saying, moving beyond just educating those around us, but also living our lives in a way that um, promotes the common good. And so um, taking that education and our knowledge and putting it into action in a way that um, others can imitate and also see. Oh, I love that, and it actually serves as a great transition to my last slide, because we are here at a Jesuit institution, um, right? And so we are all... um, taught to be men and women for others, right, here at Boston College, Um, and we're rooted in our Jesuit ideals here. And so one of the things that I like to think about at a Jesuit institution is how can I mirror these uh, Catholic, these seven themes of Catholic social teaching in my public health approach, right? How do I give a preferential option to the poor when I'm thinking about public health policy? Um, How do I promote solidarity and build communities to promote health? in our global society? How do I promote care for God's creation? So I always love to come back to these seven themes when I'm thinking about public health. Any final thoughts or questions? You all were absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much. Have a great weekend.
0: Thanks for listening to this week's Lectures in History podcast. To find even more history content, visit c-span.org slash A-H-T-V.